Okay. For those of you who saw the display in the lobby, today was Gimel Kislev. 52 years ago was the first day of this yeshiva. Uh, yeah. When Rav Amitav Zatzal, the yeshiva's founding Rosh Yeshiva, was asked, what makes this yeshiva different? You know, I'm going to be in that one if possible, so... No problem. Thank you. Sorry. I should have told you before you went. When Ravami tells us, I was asked, what makes this yeshiva different? He always told the story that we all know is the crying baby story. Balatanya was in a room learning. In the next room was his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, learning. In the third room, there was a baby sleeping. And the baby woke up and was crying. And the Balatanya crossed through the Tzemach Tzedek's room, took care of the crying baby. And on his way back, he said to the Tzemach Tzedek that if you're learning, and you don't hear the cry of a Jewish baby, there's a problem with your learning. So Rav Amitav said, this is going to be yeshiva that hears the cry of the Jewish baby. That's what's going to make this yeshiva different. That's part of it being a Hezder yeshiva. That was always the story Rav Amitav told time and time again. That baby, we know how to take care of a baby. There's experienced parents. Babies need to be fed. Babies need their diaper changed. Babies need a nap. Babies need a hug. Babies need to be helped. The problem is the baby grows up. The baby becomes a young adult, an adult, and he still has needs. And he may not be crying on the outside, but on the inside, he is crying still, sometimes. And we need people in Klai Yisrael who are in tune or attuned to listen out for that baby's cry and know just how to pat him figuratively and how to feed him spiritually and how to help him out and how to hear his cry even when it's not literal and not out loud for the rest of us to hear. We need people like Dr. Friedman, who recently just published this book, Off the Couch, which is filled with stories of people whose cries he heard and was able to help Siata Deshmaya. And we're privileged to have him here today to talk to us about some of the important issues that have come up in general, specifically due to Corona, and that may be applicable to all of you in your year in Israel, dealing with these capsules and dealing with everything that's going on. So he's here to first talk to us, and eventually to take any questions you may have. Without further ado, Dr. Friedman. Take off my mask so that we can hear I, I have to say, it's a tremendous zechus to be here. Um, it's a tremendous zechus to be here in Eretz Israel. Tremendous zechus to be here at Tivarie, one of the best yeshivas. Okay, okay, good. Uh, in Eretz Yisrael, what can I say? I just I love Torah Shraga. Baruch Hashem, you're all such good guys. Ah, gotta find a few notes to remind myself of what I'm actually doing here. You know. When I get a nice introduction, sometimes it helps me to feel uh, a bit like I'm somebody important. And there's a bit of a problem with that, too, to be perfectly honest. Uh, when you get a bit too haughty, sometimes you forget what you're doing. There's a story in the Gemara about Levi ben Sisi. I'm not sure if everybody knows about Levi ben Sisi, but what happened was that the community came from out of town and said to Rabbi Uda, we need a great Rav to lead our community. We need a Moyle, we need a Shochet, we need somebody to give tremendous Rashot, we need somebody 
who can go ahead and settle Dene uh, Mamanos. We need somebody who is ready to lead our community from the top to Nobody the bottom. Let the door join, like, the back from the top to the bottom, we need somebody incredible to lead our community. Even teaching the little kids out base, we need somebody incredible. And Rebbe Yehuda said, I have just the guy, Levi Ben Sisi. Levi Ben Sisi is a tremendous Talmud Chacham. Levi Ben Sisi is a fantastic Baal Levi Ben Sisi knows Gomorrah. Levi Ben Sisi knows Mishnah. Levi Ben Sisi knows Tanakh. Levi Ben Sisi knows Brismila. Levi Ben Sisi knows Shechita. Levi Ben Sisi can do anything that you need. He will give incredible drushes, and he can also teach Aleph Base. So they said, this is fantastic. We finally have a guy to go ahead and to lead our community. Levi Ben Sisi. They paid him a lot of money. They built a beautiful bina in the shoal, and they gave him a fantastic shtender made out of gold and a bottle of water and a safe from Ravami tells itself to go ahead and to inspire the community. And he was very excited. And they introduced him, and they said, this is one of the greatest Talmidei Chachamim. This is Levi Ben Sisi. He knows everything. He is going to take care of our community. And we could not be more grateful to have this tremendous Talmid Chacham that Rebbe Yehuda said is the best possible person to come and lead our community. Without further ado, Levi Ben Sisi. And he stood up and was silent. He had forgotten everything. And they said, after a while... Okay, maybe he's just a bit shy. So they said, you know what, we got a brisk. Can you go ahead and be the moil? And he went up there, and the knife was shaking in his hand, and he dropped it and said, I can't do it. And they said, okay, well, maybe you can at least go ahead and shech the sheep or two for the suda. And he went out to go see the sheep, and the knife was shaking in his hand, and he was nervous, and he dropped it. And they said, okay, maybe you can at least speak at the suda. And he went up and he didn't have anything good to say. And they said, okay, well, maybe you can at least teach the kids Aleph base. But he couldn't remember what happened after base. And he thought it was Dalit. And Levi Ben Sisi was tremendously embarrassed because everybody said, what's with this guy? Why is he here? And at that moment that he was most embarrassed and he couldn't remember anything, all of a sudden he said, I'm Levi Ben Sisi. And because he was a bit embarrassed and not a Balgaiva after that tremendous uh, introduction that was given, he suddenly remembered everything that he was going to talk about. And he remembered and ran to go do the brismila and shechted a bunch of animals and gave tremendous drushas and inspired the community and brought it to tremendous heights and remembered that Gimel came after base. So when I was on my way here in the cab, I was very excited because I was invited back to a top yeshiva, Yeshiva Sakotel, and was tremendously excited and inspired. And I had all these brilliant, wonderful things to say. I was very excited. And the cab driver said, where are you going? And I said, I am Chabe the Drasha at a very Hashavah Yeshiva. He said, that's fantastic. What are you going to talk about? And I realized I forgot my notes. And then as I got in here, I got held up with a bunch of phone calls that I kind of made because I was nervous and I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And then as I came in here, my hand was shaking. And I even tried calling my youngest daughter to see if she would tell me that I was the best. And she didn't want to tell me. And I had no idea what I was going to do until there was a guy outside 
that said, is that Dr. Friedman? He's going to come talk. That guy, he trained in Harvard. He's mechabed rushes everywhere. He knows what he's doing. He's good. And I thought to myself, oh God, he's talking about me. This is getting even worse. <laughs> and he said to his friend, no, that's definitely not him. That guy looks like he found his suit at a gamach. <laughs> and I said to him, you son of a gun, I found it on a bus. <laughs> all of a sudden, I remembered what I was going to talk about. So we're here to give a talk. A lot of times people ask me why I go around to yeshivas giving talks, and it's not just because I want to become infected with corona and go into bidut. <laughs> Uh, the reason that I go around giving talks in the communities is because about three and a half years ago, I was called in the middle of the night by a Rosh Yeshiva who told me that there was a Bachar who was dead outside of the dorms. And I said, okay, what does that have to do with me? He said, you understand this Bachar uh, jumped off of the roof. And I said, okay, well, what does that have to do with me? He said, well, you have to come and you have to talk to the yeshiva because about a hundred Bacharim stood there while the tzala failed to give him a CPR because he was already smushed. And now we have 350 Bacharim and we have a hundred Rabbanim on staff that are wondering what to make of this. So I came to the yeshiva and I talked to people. And as I found out more about what had happened, it became clear that he didn't commit suicide because he wanted to die. It became clear that he thought that he was a malach and had tried to fly unsuccessfully. And what was very upsetting to me about the story was that as a psychiatrist, I saw many signs that this was a very ill person for weeks, the more that I had heard. The school knew that he had been on medicines and that he may or may not have been taking them when they accepted him. His Rebbe was concerned that he talked fast and was interested in learning only Kabbalah. And his roommates wondered why he always woke up at 12 in the morning to go ahead and scream to Hillam as loud as he could at the Aram Kodesh. And to me, I saw a person who was hyper-religious who was speaking fast, not sleeping, and had clearly been manic and off of his medicines, experiencing bipolar disorder at its worst. And when they read his journal, he said, tonight I'm finally going to fly. And so he didn't try to kill himself, he tried to fly, and again, he was unsuccessful. And an entire yeshiva, when all was said and done, including the staff and the cooks and everybody else, 500 people, had one of their fellow Bahrain die a very preventable death. And I spoke to them and gave Tanchumim and talked also with this yeshiva about how this was a very preventable death and that if they changed the way that they uh, screened for mental illness, if they changed the way that they approached people with problematic and questionable behaviors, if they changed some of their policies that they could prevent something like this from happening in the future. And they heard what I said, and that was very good. And the Rosh Hashiva said to me, when we were done uh, talking about this issue a few weeks down the road, why don't you go around and talk to other yeshivas about mental health and talk with them about how you can prevent 
these things from happening in the future. Not you, Dr. Friedman, but how the yeshivas themselves can come up with various important policies to help to prevent these tragedies from happening again in the future. And I was very inspired. And I went out and had some great experiences. Uh, the first place that I went to uh, was a yeshiva where the Rosh Yeshiva said, we've been waiting for you. Every single guy here needs to talk to you. <laughs> and that was a good experience. But it wasn't fantastic because this was already a person, a Rosh Yeshiva, who knew that mental health is an issue and had already been sending a lot of his Bahrain to therapy and to psychiatrists and was doing a pretty good job of screening for mental health and ensuring that people got high-quality treatment. Uh, I went to the next place and I was brought into the basement rush and saw three of my patients and then three of my not-patients that I knew were patients of a colleague of mine. And I walked through the basement rush, and I walked into the corner, and I sat down with the Rosh Hashibo, who introduced himself to me, and said, uh, thank you so much for coming. I hear you, Dr. Friedman, that learns with Professor Yakovson in the morning. Professor Yakovson, tremendous Tamid Hochum, Ranchari Tzedek, was the doctor of the Belzerub, the doctor of the Gera Rebbe, the doctor of Rabbi Yashiv Zetzal for decades. Professor Yakovson, Tamid Hochum. It's amazing you learn with him. You should continue to learn from him. You should continue to learn with him. And you should be a Tamid Chacham, just like Professor Yakovson, and a great doctor, just like Professor Yakovson. And I said, thank you, Arav. And he said, I wish you a good day. But that wasn't why I went to get a bracha from him. So I told him, Arav, I was asked by different uh, people in our community to come around and to talk uh, about mental health with various uh, Roshe Yeshivas and Mashkichim about how we can uh, search for signs and symptoms and identify people that might need support and how to provide people who need support with the appropriate support, with high quality treatment in a timely fashion to prevent tragedies. Sorry, I just kind of feel like Hannibal Lecter behind this. Uh, so that's weird. But you guys are too young to know who have electors, so that's good. Anyways, and if you're not, then you should do chuba. Uh, anyways, I said to this Rosh Yeshiva, uh, Harav, I'm here because I think that we can save lives. And he said to me, Dr. Friedman, Yashar Koch, and I do believe that you will save some lives. But Baruch Hashem, we are a good yeshiva. And there are no lives to be saved here. These are good buffering. And I said, Harav, good people experience challenges with mental health as well. He said, we don't have kids here that do drugs. We don't have kids here from bad families. We have good buffering. And I wish you well, Dr. Friedman, in your quest to help Klai Israel. But Baruch Hashem, we don't need you here. And I said, Harav, I have to be honest. Again, it's clear to me you run a good yeshiva and there's great learning happening. I've looked across the base midrash and I've seen fantastic matmidim sitting and steiging. But I have at least three patients 
out of the Bukharim sitting here, and I know of at least three more. And if we look at simple epidemiology, one in three people will experience a challenge with mental health at some point. And that means that even good people will need a psychiatrist sometimes. And he told me, not my Bahrain. So I was mad. I was very mad. I was mad enough that I was about to call up somebody and leave a message before the beep. That's how upset I was. But I realized I wasn't going to get anywhere. And I'd do better off just talking with people who wanted to hear from me and to continue to try to encourage the people that didn't want to hear from me that they might still be a role for us to have a conversation, even if they weren't ready to hear all of the parts. But it is a tremendous zuchut to be here again at Dashreinu, talking with people that are interested in addressing mental health challenges. One in three people will experience a challenge with mental health at some point in their life. So that means that if you look to your left, and if you look to your right, and if you look at yourself, and especially if you are sitting next to Aryeh, that somebody has a challenge with mental health. If you know more than two people, you know somebody that at some point in their life will have a challenge with depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, alcoholism, addiction to marijuana or other drugs. And this is something that we can address because it is quite serious. We can save lives. And for those of us that will say, well, not everybody is going to commit suicide or jump off of a building, Dr. Friedman. That is correct. But people who are depressed, people who are anxious, people with OCD, people with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are terribly alone, oftentimes, with their mental health issues. And when people are alone, they don't get the help that they need, the support that they need. And even if it doesn't end up with a story that's quite tragic, it's still people who could be living happier and healthier lives if they had more support from their community. And I look out and I see how each of you is dying to knock down these walls because you want to be closer with your friends and you want to support them and not just because it's kind of weird to have these walls that actually don't prevent the spread of any respiratory-borne illness. <laughs> Think for more than four seconds. That being said, <laughs> you have very nice walls. <laughs> How do we understand mental health? How do we make a diagnosis of mental illness? Well, we think about two Ds. We think about deviance and dysfunction. If we're thinking about deviance, that means somebody was not normal. And if we're thinking about dysfunction, that means somebody that's struggling. So what is not normal? Well, there's a spectrum of what is normal. So if we go like this, 
and say that this is the spectrum of normal by height. That means that this guy is like 5'7", and this guy is like 6'1". So this guy is normal but kind of tall, and this guy is normal but kind of short. No offense. You're just not going to be drafted ninth in the NBA draft to the Wizards. However, this guy who's 6'3 is pretty tall, and my brother-in-law, who I can still beat up because he's younger than me, is 6'8", and that is really, really tall. And if you ever meet Yao Ming, you can say Mishane Habrius, because he is really super tall. On the other side, we got really short people, and that's okay. Some guys are 5'4", that's pretty short. Some guys are 4'11", like my best friend back in university, who I chose as my friend so I'd look even taller. <laughs> and we have to think again about deviance and dysfunction. Is there a problem with being 5'4"? No. Is there a problem with being 4'11"? Only if you want to drive and see above the dash. <laughs> so that would cause a problem. Is there a problem with being 6'8"? No. Is there a problem with being 6'11"? Perhaps if you want to fit on plane uh, and not pay for first class. So, we're thinking about deviance. Some people are pretty happy. That's normal. Some people are kind of down. That's also normal. There's always a spectrum. At some point, kind of down can become pretty down, down most days, really unhappy, and depressed. It's kind of deviant, but at what point does it become mental, mental health and a mental health issue? At the point where it becomes dysfunctional. So at the point where a person is so depressed that they don't get out of bed anymore at the point where a person is so depressed that they don't want to eat anything, at the point where a person is so depressed that they feel like they'd be better off dead. That's now dysfunctional in addition to being deviant. So that's essentially how we diagnose uh, mental health issues. We don't really have x-rays. We don't really have EKGs. Uh, all we have is talking to people. Uh, However, when people come into my office, most of the time they either say they're totally fine because they don't want to be there and somebody just made them come, and they'll pretend everything is great and hunky-dory, or they'll come in and they'll be super nervous and infinitely worse than they ever are on a normal day. They'll be stressed out, they'll be edgy, they'll be shaking, they'll be asking a lot of nervous questions, and that might actually not be how they normally are. So I can ask a lot of questions, and I can go ahead and use some tricks of the trade. But in the end, I will rely on collateral information. What is collateral information? Where is Eliyahu? Put up your hand. I don't have my glasses on. Where's Eliyahu? Where's Eliyahu? Nowhere? Okay, the last time that I bailed Eliyahu out of jail in New Orleans, uh, he and I talked about... I'm just kidding. Uh, so, uh, what's important is collateral information. 
Because when Eli Auer shows up in my office, unless I have his roommate, who has went ahead and said, Doc, I know you're seeing my roommate Eli Auer. I just want to let you know I came with him to the appointment today because sometimes we got to bail him out of jail in New Orleans. He's got a bad drinking problem. Because when I ask Eli Auer, Hey, buddy, you doing okay? He's going to tell me I'm fine because he doesn't want to confront his drinking problem. But when you provide that collateral information, you allow me to confirm a diagnosis and to do a better job. Who diagnoses issues that have to do with mental health? Who makes a psychiatric diagnosis? Well, when a person has a heart problem, they go to a cardiologist. When a person has a stomach problem, they go to a gastroenterologist. When a person, here's a hard one, has a thyroid problem, they go to a endocrinologist. Your dad's an endocrinologist. That's cheating. Uh, when a person has a lung problem, they go to a pulmonologist. And when a person has a psychiatric problem, they go to some weird white guy from Queens that spent a few years in China and now does acupuncture. <laughs> and that's funny, except that that poor guy with OCD is getting reflexology, Bach flowers, homeopathic drops, and CBD oil for the past five years, and his wife has now left him, and he's unemployed, because he never actually got reasonable, high-quality treatment. When a person has a problem with mental illness, they should see a licensed mental health practitioner, including social workers, including psychologists, and including psychiatrists. There is nothing to be afraid of. I do have a firearm on me, but I will most likely not use it on you when you come to my office. That would be unreasonable. <laughs> It might be overkill. So, there's really nothing to be afraid of, if you think about it. You know, I sometimes walk on my roof, because I'm not really afraid of heights, I'm just afraid of lengths and widths. Okay. <laughs> but there's really nothing besides lengths and widths to be afraid of we think about it. If a person has a mental illness, they can come to see a psychiatrist and get real and appropriate treatment. When people come into my office, I talk with them and I tell them, do you want me to ask you questions or do you want to tell me a story? And most of the time, people do something really annoying where they say both because that was not an option. <laughs> However, I will then most likely start to ask them questions. Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? What does your day look like? You ever seen a doctor before? What's going good in your life? What's not going good in your life? What do you wish could be better? Any questions that you have? Any concerns that you have? What kind of things are hard for you? What kind of things do you excel at? And we have a conversation. And then I'll hear collateral information from the Rebbe at the yeshiva who's in charge of making referrals. I might hear from a roommate, from a parent, from a child. How many people here have children they know about? Okay. Uh, hopefully if you have children that you know about, they can't talk. 
Um, hopefully a few children you don't know about that also can't talk to reveal you. Uh, sometimes I call the wrong number and I say, can I speak to Yossi? And the mom says, uh, and I say, well, let me speak to him. And the mom says, well, he's only two months old. And I say, that's fine, I'll wait. <laughs> Now, beyond that, we'll again ask questions and we'll hear some information about what's going on. And then I'll come up with an assessment and I'll say something to the fact of, I've heard what you've told me, I've heard what I've heard from your loved ones and teachers, and this is what I think is going on. And then that'll give the patient the ability to uh, clarify further with me, maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong many times. I'm bald, which suggests that I've been on this planet for a while, and I've done a lot of bad things, or Shem would not have punished me with being bald. So, Shem has also punished you with being bald. Okay. Uh, Now, uh, we'll talk about it. And one of the main reasons that people are nervous to see a psychiatrist beyond the stigma uh, is because they don't want to take a medicine. Do I have the ability to force anybody to take a medicine if they don't want to take it? Of course I do, because I'm big and I'm good with knots. (laughs) But I don't really have the time to force people to take medicine because I have kids, a family, other patients, and eventually I would lose my license if I was tying people up and forcing them to take medicines against their will. So, with that in mind, I generally don't do that. And, in general, I don't get paid to prescribe medications. I get paid to do assessments. And if it's my assessment, that the benefits of taking a medicine would outweigh the risks of taking a medicine, then I will make a recommendation that the benefits of this medicine outweigh the risks of this medicine. And that's a safe assessment. That's objective, because I don't get paid one way or another. With that in mind, out of the patients that come into my office, 100% are encouraged to work on their sleep hygiene, 100% are encouraged to do more cardiovascular exercise. About 80% are encouraged to see a therapist. About 78% are encouraged to drink less alcohol, smoke less marijuana, and crack. And about 50% are encouraged to take a medicine. So there's not really too much to be afraid of because we're talking about many things that people can do to be healthy. Getting enough sleep helps a person to be healthy. Not getting enough sleep makes a person feel sugar We've all experienced that. Exercising every day is a very healthy thing to do. Not only does exercise make us feel good about ourselves, It improves our concentration, and it's a potent antidepressant in the acute setting. 
40 minutes of cardiovascular exercise five to six days per week is as effective as an antidepressant in mild to moderate depression. That's been studied, and that suggests that everybody should exercise because it's a treatment of depression and because the Rambam says that your body is your temple and you need to take care of it. Alcohol is not something that should be used to excess. Marijuana is something that is usher. You can question me on this, but the guttural door in America, and you're all American, or you speak American, or you speak funny, says the Negroes motion in your day Helik Gimel Lamid Hay that smoking marijuana is forbidden. He says that it's unhealthy. He says that your parents don't want to do it. He says it can make you a Bensor or Moray. And he says that it's illegal. And he says, most importantly, that our quest as human beings is to perfect ourselves and to be as clear and perfect in our service of the Kaddish Baruch Hu as possible. So a lot of people will say, or motion. It's not legal. Okay. So motion. My parents don't care. Or of motion. I'm not going to be a bad sore anymore. Of motion. It's actually healthy for you, according to some people that don't know what they're talking about or who are bought off by the industry or friends with Willie Nelson. But if the goal is to be as clear as possible and serve Hashem, that's still relevant. How can you tell if you have a problem with substance use? Besides saying, Ruvain has a problem with substance abuse, and I drink a lot more than he does. Or Shimon definitely smokes too much marijuana, and I sell him drugs. <laughs> I'm going to give you Roche Tavos, because we're all Yeshiva guys, which means that we like Roche Tavos. Cage. C-A-G-E. C. Cut down. A. Annoy. G. Guilty. W. Is anybody from England? Yes? What's a not nice word that starts with W? You got it. So, if you need to cut down Meaning, have you ever thought that you are using too much alcohol? Have you ever thought that you are smoking too many cigarettes? Have you ever been thinking that maybe you're checking your fantasy football team too many times at 3 in the morning? Have you ever wondered if you smoke way too much marijuana? That's cutting down. C. A. Annoy. Do your roommates annoy you and say, buddy, you got to cut down? Do your mother says, you got to stop drinking too much. Does your Rebbe say, you're smoking way too many cigarettes? Gee, guilty. Do you ever feel bad about the fact that you smoke your jewel e-cigarette on Shabbos? Do you ever feel like you were too drunk and you missed out on Shacharis? Do you feel guilty because you got busted for smoking marijuana? W, are you a wanker? If so, and you meet any of those criteria, 
Well, E is actually, it's not a W, cage, he said. E is eye-opener. If the first thing you do when you wake up is smoke your jewel, check your fantasy football team before you didn't until you let your dime, drink in the morning for people who are really struggling, if you say yes to one of these, you most likely have a problem. If you say yes to two of these, you definitely have a problem. If you say yes to all of them, you can talk to me when we're done at 7.15 before Marth. That is a good way of telling if you have a problem. Cage. Cut down. Annoy. Guilty. Eye-opener. And what about medicines? Medicines are generally safe. Is anybody here older than 70? No. So the first antidepressants have been around for more than 70 years. They were invented by Joe Schultkraut, and they're fine. If they were dangerous, we'd already have a lot of dead people lying on the ground. Is anybody here over the age of 40? We got very few. That means that in general, Prozac is older than you. If you got to take it, it ain't going to kill you. So then what's our fear? Why don't we want to go ahead and take a medicine if that's what we need? Well, there's only one answer. Because if you go to a cardiologist and you have high blood pressure, you'll take that medicine because your heart's going to stop working. If you go to a pulmonologist for asthma and he gives you an inhaler, you're going to take that or you're going to die because you can't breathe. If you go to an endocrinologist for your diabetes shots and you need insulin, you're going to take it or you're going to go into a coma. If you have a psychiatric problem, who knows if you're going to get your acupuncture? or your CBD oil, or your Bach flowers. Who knows if you're going to take your medicine? Why? Because of stigma. People are very, very embarrassed about psychiatric problems. They're weird. What's wrong with them? He has to see a psychiatrist. He must be nuts. People are concerned. What if I take this? Does it mean I'm crazy? What if I'm diagnosed with something? Does that mean I'm deficient? What if I take something? Will that make me not me? These are all great questions. But in the end, it has to do with the embarrassment that something is deficient. Let me say this a few times so we make sure we get it. Mental illness is an illness of the brain with behavioral symptoms. Okay, let's say this again. Mental illness is a disorder of the brain with behavioral symptoms. We're going to say it once more for Azaka. Mental illness is a disorder of the brain with behavioral symptoms. So why isn't it a neurological problem? Great question. Well, it's a false dichotomy between neurology and psychiatry, I believe. And I think that with more information we'll be able to show on fMRIs and on brain scans exactly where depression is. We can already do it in many research settings to show that when a person is depressed, there are parts of their brain that are not working effectively. When a person is anxious, there are different chemicals in their body that are being produced causing stress. So how can a person be embarrassed? This is a physical illness, except that there's a lot of stigma 
that's a very terrible thing. We have to work on this to decrease the stigma. And when we understand it as a brain disease with behavioral symptoms, as opposed to a brain disease with motor or sensory or perceptual symptoms, which is what neurological illnesses like stroke, epilepsy, and multiple sclerosis are, then it helps to dispel a lot of the stigma. We need to work very hard to encourage people to be mentally healthy, to be psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physiologically in touch with themselves. Because if we don't do a good job, then we have people who do not get high-quality care in a timely fashion. Now, the general rule goes like this. The worse you are, the harder it is to bounce back up to 100%, and the longer it takes. The challenge is, is that people are only really bad because they've gone a long time without treatment and without getting the help that they need. And for every day that a person has been sick, it takes a day to get better. For every week, it takes a week. For every month, it takes a month. So timely intervention with evidence-based, high-quality treatment supported by research is very, very important. Getting it in a timely, appropriate fashion is the only way that a person will bounce back fast. If you go to the Grand Canyon and you go to take a selfie and you don't fall to your death, then it's a 15-minute walk back to the parking lot. If you hike all the way down into the Grand Canyon for a few hours, it will take a few hours to hike back up. The further you go down, the more you have to go back up. And we need to make sure that we don't let our fellow Jews go down. I will never be responsible for any of you beyond Kol Yisrael Avim Zelazet. But you guys are brothers. I mean, it's not for nothing that you will live and die together in these pods. You have chosen people that you are responsible for. And responsibility is more than just putting your arm over him in a sentimental, suggestive <laughs> way. It requires true Christ. I am not going to know that there's a problem until I get a phone call from Rabbi Friedman. He is not going to know until you approach him about your roommate. You are worried to approach Rabbi Friedman about your roommate because it's Lushen Haram. Or if you're not so from, snitching. But the truth is, you are saving lives. I'm not just talking about if he goes berserk and on a rampage and decides to take a fort to everybody. I'm talking about saving his life and saving your life. Because people who get help for other people can really benefit from it. Because it feels good to know that you're looking out for your fellow yid. And people who don't get help for people that need it end up suffering along with them because they know that they could have done something. And I promise you that every single roommate, everybody in that dorm, 
of the young guy that jumped off trying to fly knew that they could have done something and thought long and hard about it and continues to think long and hard about what they could and should have done. Mental health is a ubiquitous problem. I once saw a very Ashurov. He wanted to bring me his grandson who had a terrible mental illness called schizophrenia for a second opinion. He brought me a big folder full of letters. He brought me his grandson. And we sat down and I asked the fellow some questions. I heard from his father, the rug. And we sat. And it was a very powerful visit. And I think I made some good recommendations. And at the end of the visit, the rub said to me, you have to know that we're a good family. I said, what do you mean? He said, we didn't do anything wrong that we deserve this. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we didn't do anything wrong. Like, this is, you know, what just kind of happened, and this was what the Abishur chose. I said, I know. And I said, then why are you saying you're a good family? He said, because, you know, this happened. I said, Harav. How many kids do you have? He said, some crazy, beautiful number like 19. I said, how many grandkids do you have? And he said, another crazy, beautiful number like 217. He said, how many great grandkids do you have? And he said, I wish I knew. I said, a rug. This is the only one? I said, yeah. I said, it's a testament to how beautiful your family is, that you have all these beautiful people in your family, and you've worked hard to take care of the one who needs it the most. There's nothing wrong with you. Everything is right with you. You're an amazing person. You don't have to be embarrassed. This is a brain disease with behavioral symptoms. Nobody's done anything wrong. And when I had the zuchut to go about two years ago to the Admor Shlita, we'll leave out which Hasidus this is, I was very excited because it was Erever of Pesach and my wife was going to kill me because I had not cleaned out the cars. And because domestic violence is only funny when it's women versus men, I can make that joke. <laughs> and because I was nervous for my life, I went ahead and Davin that Hashem would give me a good excuse. And I got a call that the Atmar was ready to sit with me. So I took my boys, because they were likely also to be victims of mopping and cleaning and doing other things that we would rather avoid doing. And we ran out of the house into the car and avoided getting beaten to death with nunchucks. Because <laughs> my wife is a Japanese skewart. Just kidding. <laughs> and even if she was, why would she have nunchucks and beat me to death with them? Think about it. <laughs> but we ran into the car. 
drove into the city. And it wasn't like seeing the Admiral of Bells, Shlita. Because when you go to see the Admiral of Bells, you knock on the door, and then they check to see who you are, and they tell you to go away. And then eventually you tell them that you're supposed to be there, and they bring you into the first waiting room. And in the first waiting room, the first servant comes in and says, who are you and why are you here? And you tell him who you are and that you were invited. And he says, we don't have time for you. And you get a bit disheartened and you're ready to leave. But then he comes back in and right when you're about to leave and says, you can go to the next room. And you go to the next room and now there are some relics of the family and some sparring. And you're offered a cup of tea and a cookie and they ask who you are and what you're doing there. And you tell them why you're there and that you were invited and they say the Rebbe doesn't have time. And as you're about to leave, they say you can go to the next room. And in the next room, there's the bencher and the stender of one of the previous rows and some smart sparring and pictures from the cities in the old country. And you're offered another cup of tea and another cookie. And you tell them who you are. And you tell them that you were invited and they say the Rebbe doesn't have time. And now you're really upset because you made it to the third room. And you date your stuff and you get ready to leave. And then they bring you in to see the Admor. And it's Amish like seeing Melech. It's an incredible experience. But at this other incident, it was more like getting trampled to death at a Brazilian soccer match. And everybody is pushing, and I'm holding my kids and telling them that I love them and to say Shema Yisrael <laughs> as 18,000 Hasidim try to squash me repetitively and don't apologize, but tell me I shouldn't have been there and that I don't belong there. But I had an in, and the Gabbai brought me in. And I went in to see the Admar, and my kids got a bracha. And I said, Kavod, Rav Shlita. I'm a psychiatrist. And if I can ever be helpful, Yevid, I want to be helpful. And he said, when I was a little kid, it was Yevid, But right now, my understanding is that one in three people have mental illness. And that means that if you know more than two people, and especially if you know Aryeh, that you know somebody with a mental health problem. And right now it's Lachila. You need to go out there and save lives. And I believed him, and I still believe him, that we have the ability to save lives. And if you saw that your friend was shaking in the middle of the night and was having a seizure, you can bet that you would talk to the dorm dad, you would call it solo, you would talk to Rabbi Shai to ensure that he was getting the care that he needed. But when you have a roommate who sleeps in late and who's suffering and who's clearly too nervous to speak up in class, or maybe he touches mezuzah a few times, or maybe he gets edgy and says, we net her all the time, or maybe he has some strange thoughts. Or maybe he really drinks quietly by himself instead of participating in the softball league. 
when you have questions about a friend of yours and you wonder, does this guy have depression or anxiety? Unfortunately, you might be quiet and you might not say anything. And it might be a special home that I'm brought back to have an emergency talk because that's happened at many issues. And in Arnulf, there were two seminary girls that jumped recently. And in Ramat Beit Shemesh, there were a number of suicides. And I was flown out to Manchester for Hanukkah last year to talk to the community because there were eight confirmed suicides in the from community there in a very short period of time and many serious attempts that were not publicized. And if you do not intervene in a timely fashion, not only will it be harder for your friend to get better, but you will have blown the chance to do a tremendous mitzvah. And we know that Kol Yisrael Aravim Zelazah is a tremendous mitzvah. And this is something that's very important and dear to us. Where do we see this in the Chumash? Kol Yisrael Aravim Zelazah. It's definitely not in Kilayim. Rav Wachsvogel's itself says that we see it by Eglorufa. Where do we see it in Eglorufa? We know that the Zakini will go out when they find an third person in the middle of the field, and they will say, We did not kill this person, and we did not see who killed this person. And then they'll bring Kilo Korban and Megla Rufo, and everyone will disperse. Now the Rambam is genius by the smartest person that ever lived. The Rambam says that the reason that we do this is because it's a big simcha. All the zakenim were there. Kohen Gadol is maybe there, according to some opinions. And the whole Sanhedrin, and this is a big thing. What a tekes. How exciting. And they go out, and it's a big procession, and the entire town is Vadai going to come to see what's going on. And when everybody is there, except for Mati Levi, everybody's going to say, hey, where's Mati Levi? And they're going to know something's up with Mati Levi. And people are going to say, you know what? Mati Levi was actually uh, frustrated with this fellow. Mati Levi was actually, uh, had a bit of a beef with this guy that we just found down in the middle of the field. And it'll help to solve the crime in a Matlock-type fashion. But the Blasphobel says that the real reason that we do this is because it was Mamish the fault of the community. How's Peshawim that a person should go out hungry? Again, this is Peshat. How's Peshawim that a person should go out hungry and be looking for food and maybe want to rob somebody and get killed in the process? How's Peshawim he should go out without an escort, not know where he's going and be robbed himself? But really, if we're not watching out for our fellow Jew, then we've contributed to whatever might happen to him. We've got to say this at the end of the day, that we did everything possible to try and save our fellow 
buffer who is down in that moment. And if we, Hasrashalam, missed out on the opportunity to make an intervention to get a person the help that they needed, we would in the end be responsible for anything that might happen. And as Rabbi Yontan Shai said, this is a place where we just can't tolerate watching and waiting and wondering what will happen. This is a place where it's time to make an intervention and to say, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Nobody? Man, you guys are young. And when one in three people will struggle with mental health issue at some point in their life, it is incumbent upon us to know more about psychiatric illness in order to make timely interventions to ensure that our brothers will get the help that they need in order to continue being our brothers and in order to be there for us. And the Eberstuk give us the koch to do a good job with this and every mitzvah. Like we're done. Question.